You are listening to the Passion City Church Podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. It's a continuation of a series entitled Worthy. Well, I have a good friend, a mentor, who's a pastor on, in the suburbs of Houston. And there was a particular day that he had decided to drive down into Houston, which if you know, that is a decision. It's going to take you a solid hour uh, to traverse Houston in its great breadth and length. But there was somebody he wanted to visit down in the medical center downtown, which was not a normal rhythm of his, but there was someone down there at the medical center. And so he decided to go visit them. And while he was down there visiting a friend, he realized, you know, I got a friend who works down here. And I can't, I think it was like a college buddy or something that he was like, I haven't seen this dude in forever. I'm just going to text him like rando, like, hey, man, what are you doing? And uh, he texted the guy and the guy texted back. I was like, you should come see me. And he was like, yeah, all right. So he went building over or something and went and visited the guy. And so they're chatting, catching up, and like all your doctor friends are like, how's life going? That's great. That's awesome. How are you feeling? Are you, you know, starts asking some of those questions. He's like, well, you know, I mean, good. I mean, I, I feel like I've got like a, I don't know, like a heartburn or something today. Like something's bothering me. And his friend's like, well, let me ask you a few questions. Uh, you know, and starts uh, doing this and that, asking him some stuff. How he's feeling? How long has it started? What's going on? He's like, come with me for a minute. And then he started uh, doing a stress test on him. And as my friend, pastor, buddy, is running on this treadmill, his doctor, buddy, stops him and says, come with me. Walks slowly, hand me your bag, takes his bag from him. I don't want you to carry it. Gets him to a wheelchair, wheels him out. He says, I've got somebody waiting in my personal car down front. Get in that car. You're going one building over, over this way. And he sends him over there. And my buddy's like, what is going on? And they get him to that building, and they're waiting for him there. They rush him, put him on a stretcher, start wheeling him in. And he's like, what is going on? And as they're wheeling him to surgery, they let him know, it's not a heartburn you're experiencing. Your body's trying to have a heart attack. You didn't eat something bad. You got an artery that's 99% blocked. And he said, and it's an artery they call the Widowmaker because it kills you fast. And he says, you're, you're right there. And so they wheeled him into surgery and saved his life. And it's amazing when he woke up, it's like all the serendipitous things that happened to get him to a place where his wife was about to be a widow that day, but God intervened and save that man's life. Now, why bring that up? Why mention that? Because it's interesting to think he was experiencing some pain. And pain is an indicator that something's wrong, right? But it doesn't necessarily tell you exactly what is wrong. Pain will let you know something's wrong, but you need a physician to diagnose the cause, right? That's what he needed. His diagnosis was off. Was it a hot dog? Got some rumbly tumblies? Take some Tums? You'd be a dead man, right? No, the reality is that pain led him to a physician, and that physician gave him a diagnosis, and that diagnosis led him to a cure, which was essential. Why? Because the magnitude of the solution is commensurate with the magnitude of the problem. If you just got a tummy ache, you need some Tums. You got a blocked artery, you need a surgeon. And so it's important to get a good diagnosis because the strength of the cure has to match the strength of the disease. You don't get aspirin to that guy. You wheel him into surgery, right? And so we got to understand the problem if we're going to appreciate the cure because the magnitude of the problem is proportionate to the magnitude of the cure. 
So why bring all that up? Because we know there's something wrong with the world today. It's interesting for me. Spiritual conversations come up all the time with people. And you go, how do they come up for you? Well, they ask me what I do for a living, right? And it either kills the conversation or starts one. I'm like, I'm a pastor. And we start talking. And what's interesting is whenever we start talking about God or talking about the Bible, I tell people there's something wrong with the world today. And no one's like, are you sure? Because I see skies of blue and clouds of white. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Like, nobody says that. Everybody's like, I know, right? And then they start telling me a story of some uncle who's a mess or what social media has done to the young people or the wars that will not stop raging or the starvation or human trafficking or abuse of the most vulnerable among us. And everybody agrees that's never a point of debate. There's something wrong with the world. There's something not right about this. And no one really debates that there's something wrong with you. Nobody's like, I don't know. I kind of feel like I'm sinless. I don't know. I feel perfect. No one thinks that. Everybody knows there's something wrong with them. Everyone's like, I don't know. Maybe I need to lose a little weight or gain a little weight or run more or eat better. Or I got to read a self-help book. I got to understand my childhood. I got to get to this position. I got to get that job. I got to make this much money. And we start trying to find a solution to, to be the cure because we know there's a problem. And what's interesting here is we're at the point in the book of Ephesians where Paul is going to say, you're feeling some pain because there is a problem. And we need to take that problem to the physician. And the physician's going to diagnose you. And, and no one really likes the diagnosis part. It's interesting. Statistically, a number of people know they should get checked for certain things. You hit certain ages. You're supposed to get certain physicals. And people put it off. And it's interesting. In surveys, people ask why. They're like, because I'm afraid of what the doctor's going to say. And you're like, you're more afraid of what the doctor's going to say than the possibility that you might like, have cancer right now. <laughs> But there's something about hearing the diagnosis that scares us. I don't, I don't know if I really want it to land on me, the problem underneath the pain. But you got to. You don't heal a broken leg by ignoring it. You take it to the doctor. He x-rays it, says it's broke. And then he can put his hands on it and heal you, right? And so Paul's going to take us to the problem in the first part of Ephesians 2. And then he's going to lead us to the cure. And we're going to see the implications for our life. You see it? And the problem... I would guess, is much worse than you think. Paul will start in chapter 2, verse 1, and he says, you were dead. And he used a personal pronoun. He's talking to a group of people, and he's like, let me tell you about you. This is very personal. You are dead. That's the Bible's diagnosis of us. And it's interesting. There's different words for death in the Bible, and he uses the word in Greek, the, the language Paul wrote it in originally, the word nekros, which a, a very literal translation of that would be corpse. You're a corpse. I, I don't know how often you've been around a corpse or dead body. Uh, for me, I remember there was one moment, and I won't tell the whole story, but um, I had to help a mortician dress a dead body. And it was kind of a crazy situation. Like, I was visiting him, and there was a, a, a wreck. A guy had passed away, and the family was going to go identify the body, and it was very quickly we had to dress this body. Normally, you don't pull in rando dudes to help you do this. It was kind of a weird situation, but I'm there, and we're like, we got to dress this body. And so he leads me into this room with this, the body of a man who was about my age and about my stage in life. And he says, wait here a second. I got to go get a few things. And so he ran off. And so me and this body were there for a few minutes. And I don't know if you've had this experience where if you looked at a body, it's instantly 
surreal because you see all the potential. But what strikes you is the oddness of it. Like that chest should be moving. That's what's, it should be moving. Those, those eyes should be blinking. This hand should be twitching. This is incredibly still. There's all this potential, but it's not being actualized. This feels wrong, right? And what's fascinating about that is Paul is trying to talk to us about our spiritual estate apart from God. And as Paul is searching for a metaphor, what's the right way to describe our hearts before God? Paul's mind goes to the morgue. His mind goes to it. Our hearts are so far from what we're meant to be that when Paul searches for a metaphor, he goes to the grave, right? He says, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Trespass means there was a line we were not meant to cross and we crossed it. There was a place we were never meant to be, and that's where we are. And sin is talking about landing at a place where we are what we were never meant to be. The Bible says we as people have a beauty about us in the image of God, but we've gone places we were never meant to go, and we've become things we were never meant to be. Paul will say to the Romans, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're not the glorious things we should be. All of us have fallen short. There's something wrong. And Paul looks and says, it's we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But then in verse 2, he says, you're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked. We're walking. And the idea there is that death is is a realm. It's a sphere. You move around in. And that word walk is the word peripotomen. Peri uh, means around. Potomen is to walk. And so he's not saying you're on a path. He's saying walk around. Uh, It's a metaphor for living. He says, all of us are living in a space. We're walking around, living our lives under the realm of death and of trespasses and of sins. And then he does something interesting. He starts to talk about this realm. And it was interesting. I, I feel like I heard a pastor talk about this, and I think about it all the time when I look at the news, that every few years and with increasing frequency now, some horrible tragedy uh, will happen in the news. And we'll catch another one, and it's something heinous and atrocious and loss of life. And what happens every few years is it's so significant that the media begins to try to look for cause. How could a person do that thing? How could a human being commit that act? And they start looking for causation of evil in front of a horrible evil. And what's fascinating is they typically go to one of three places. As we're looking at causation for evil, they'll look external at societal issues. Well, maybe they had a home life that was broken. Maybe they were in a bad tribe. There was a crowd of people they were around that influenced them. They, they, got, they got in a bad, or the system has failed them. They were in part of a system that's failed them when we look at systemic or social or external factors. Some look at spiritual factors. When something's really dark or really evil, they go, that person had to have been under the influence of some kind of mystical. This was so dark, chemicals and physiology alone can't account for that kind of act. Or some look internally and say, no, it was that person's decision. That person started getting involved in some dark things online. They started to entertain some dark thoughts, and then they did dark things. That was their decision. You don't need to blame anybody else. That was their choice. And it's interesting. When something evil happens and the debate breaks out, people tend to do that. Well, there's demons in the world. Well, society's broken. Well, that person's crazy. And we start to get into it. It's one of those. 
And typically, when people start that debate, is it external, internal, spiritual? They tend to say, well, the Bible's obviously going to say spiritual. But what's interesting is the Bible looks at all three and says, yes. There's multiple factors to what's wrong with us. And so Paul will say, you were dead in which you walked. And then he says, following the course of the world. There is a social external element to the brokenness in us. It's interesting, back in the 1950s, there was an experiment, many of you have probably read about the Ash Conformity Experiment, and it was an experiment designed to show social influence, and it's been repeated in various ways, different, uh, different ways, but the Ash Conformity Experiment was uh, where they had, they always do it on college kids, so they were experimenting on college kids. Um, they brought these kids in, and they would ask them a series of fairly obvious questions, like which line is longer, that sort of thing, which circle is red, and then they would all vote on the right answer. Very simple question. But the real experiment was that everybody there was in on the game except one person. And so the whole point of the experiment was if you were that rando person, you came in and you thought we were all trying to answer some questions, but they were all in on it. And so they would show them a couple lines and say, which one's the longest? And the person would be like, well, clearly it's A. But then everyone in the circle would be like, yeah, B, B, B. And they would point at the shortest line. And you can watch the videos. The person's confused, like, <laughs> and over time, it was fascinating to watch the person. As that continued and they asked questions, you would see the person start to slump in their chair. You'd see them just physically fold like a lawn chair. And 75% of applicants just would start giving whatever answer the rest of the crowd was. 75%. Obviously wrong answer. Which one's red? The blue one. I mean, people just... <laughs> gave up. Social pressure was so hard, they folded. And so you look at the world today and go, what's wrong with the world today? Why am I making the decision? It's funny. When something horrible happens sometimes in different countries or cultures where there was just a whole group of people involved in something bad, they'll say, I don't know. Everybody was doing it. My whole culture was doing it. Everyone I knew was into it. And they instantly realized what we were doing was wrong, but everybody was, there's a social element. And Paul says, yeah, we were walking along the course of this world. Uh, and also, following the prince of the power of the air is what he'll say. There's a spiritual component. It's fascinating. I read two books a couple years ago in the same year, and both of them were written by authors who did not believe in God. They weren't spiritual books. They weren't about spirituality. But there were two authors that did not believe in God. But by the end of the book, both of them had stepped into the world of believing there was a God. But what was fascinating was Belief in a benevolent deity is not what opened their mind up to a spiritual world. What got them to go on a journey of believing there's a spiritual world was looking at the darkness in the world. Both men, as they watched what some of their friends got involved in, what their loved ones did, or what they themselves got connected with, over time they looked at this world they had entered of studying some of the brokenness in humanity, and both of them came to a place where they were like, there is something that's doing something to these people. There is a power influencing my group of friends that are in this dark thing. There, there's there's got to be something that's dehumanizing us that leads us to do these horrible things we do to each other. How else do you account for it? And two people that were secular people, educated people, who did not believe in a spiritual realm, suddenly became to believe in a God, not because of some benevolence they thought was out there in the world, but because of a darkness they saw. There's something wrong with this place, right? And Paul will say, yes, all of us are in that realm because we were following the prince of the power of the air. Now, why call him that? Prince means there's a ruler. There's a spiritual honcho, CEO, that runs this sphere. 
And the air back then was a way of talking about the spiritual matrix that's not the highest of the heavenlies where God is, but there's a, there's a spiritual world out there that can influence, and it's real, and it's damaging, right? And it's a spirit, he says, that is working now in the sons of disobedience. That word sons is an intimate name. He's like, it's working in us so that we're disobeying, that God made us to live a certain way, and we're not, that we're living our lives in such a way where it doesn't even cross our mind to ask the question, what does God think about this? Does this please him or not? Does this, is this why he designed me? Is this what I'm for? We're not even asking those questions. We're just going for ours. He says, there's something about that that... Uh, Kaiser Soze said the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing us he did not exist, right? That it's not that you're suddenly like using a Ouija board every night. It's just that suddenly we're in a place where we're like, you know what? I am just walking in a way where I'm not even thinking, what does God think about my life? And then Paul does something interesting when he points at the third one. There's an internal component. There's external, spiritual, and then internal. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That's good preaching, Bad preaching is just pointing at you. You're dead and your sins and you're in. It makes people feel bad. And Paul's like, look, we were all there. And he winds the lens and says, if this offends you, if you're like, I hate this sermon, um, it's not just about you. Paul's saying this is the diagnosis for all of us. We were all in this together. And he says, all of us lived in the passions of our flesh, the lusts of the part of us that's apart from God, not necessarily your physical body, but the, the God-less part of you. And we were carrying out the desires of the body and desires of the mind. And you go, what does that mean, carrying out the desires of the body and desires of the mind? Desires of the body is this lust, you know, uh, that's impulsive. We talk about it all the time. You know, in all the love songs out there that are apologizing for cheating on you, I, I could list them, but it would take the rest of the time. I feel like every third song now in America is about, I'm sorry, baby, that kind of thing. Um, I was the one the other day where he's like, I apologize for being a man. And you're like, really? That's the way you're going to lay it out there, bro? Okay, uh, throw all of mankind under the bus. But um, it's just the impulse. I just did it. I wanted to see it, so I clicked on it. I wanted to try it, so I tried it. I wanted to sleep with them, so I slept with them. I, just, I wanted to say something mean, so I said it. I wanted to tell them off, so I told them off. I wanted to gossip, so I said it. I just did it. It was just an impulse. I didn't even think about it. The devil made me do it, right? That's the passion of the body. The passion of the mind he throws that in and he's like, because some people are like, well, I'm not impulsive like that. And you go, no, no, some of us, you thought about it and you made a decision. You're like, there's a thing that I know is wrong, but you know what? It's been a hard day and I'm this and I'm that and they don't know and y'all don't know me and I'm going to do it, right? And he said, every one of us has walked around in this sphere. Well, sometimes we're led by our passionate impulses. Sometimes we make willful decisions. Either way, we are all living in this circle and are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says, all of humanity is sucked up in this. There's something deeply wrong with us. And he says, it's by nature. And if you don't believe me, go work in bloom. Work in the nursery, right? There's something wrong with those babies, right? <laughs> I remember when I was in high school, I went to go visit a mentor and uh, it was a time we were going to meet and visit. So I'm knocking on his door. He's not answering the door. So I keep knocking on the door. He's not answering. And finally, I open the door. And he's just sitting there on his couch, staring at his little kid. I'm like, Mark, you OK, buddy? And without even looking at me, he's still looking at the kid. He goes, this child has known nothing but his mother and father's love. I was like, I believe that. You're great people. He's like, no, you don't understand. We don't have a TV on here. He's witnessed no violence. 
uh, in a hospital. There was no TV. He, he has seen no violence in his life. All he has known is the protective womb of comfort and love and acceptance from his mother and I. And I was like, okay. And he was like, today, he wanted a toy his sister was playing with. So he backhanded her across the face. He says, there's something evil in there. I'm like, I know. <laughs> By our very nature, humanity broke a long time ago. And none of us enter into the Garden of Eden pristine and pure. We all are born into the brokenness. There's something broken here. And it says we're the children of wrath. That word wrath comes from the root word for nostril or to snort. You go, why do you bring that up? Because when you're really angry, go look at your nose. All right, you're gonna, it flares in anger. And what's fascinating about that is it's talking about the anger of God, that when God sees what's become of the world, he's angry. I mean, I remember the angriest I ever saw my dad. We were visiting um, uh, a, a, one of those care facilities that, that my grandmother was in. We, he was paying money for these people to care for her uh, in her old age. And as we walked into the building, we heard yelling down the hallway, help me, please help me, it hurts. And when we turned the corner, it was my grandma. And she had been tied to a chair and was slumped over and was crying alone. And I remember as a little kid looking up at my dad and seeing fury in my dad's face. My dad was a gentle person. I'd never seen that before. But I saw his anger, and it was terrifying, but it was right. What he saw was wrong, and he hated what's wrong. It's interesting. I feel like back in the day, the wrath of God was a thing nobody wanted to talk about. I think now people are getting on board with it at some level because you look at the world sometimes, you go, that's wrong. The sheer volume of sexual abuse in our country is overwhelming to look at. The sheer volume of human suffering. Imagine if you had an estate and you had people you were caring for and you entrusted it to a family and you said, hey, take care of my place and take care of my people. And you came back and they had sexually assaulted one out of six of your people and kept most of the money for their own comfort and starved others. You'd be furious. And God looks down at the world and is like, this is a mess. God is angry at this place because of the chaos that he's seen. That's what he's saying. We are very children of his wrath. God is mad like the rest of mankind. We are all in this boat. We're all a part of this family, all dead. And some of you may go, well, Ben, I'm not that bad. You keep talking about human atrocities. I'm not that bad a guy. What's well, it's fascinating. In the Bible, Jesus raised three people from the dead. A little girl, Jairus' daughter, moments after she died. There was a young man that was being carried out as part of his funeral. And Jesus intercepted the funeral. It had been about a day or so. And Jesus walked up and saw his mom crying. Jesus was like, not today. Stop the funeral. And was like, be alive. All right? And raised that guy from the dead. And then Lazarus was the last one. And you remember Lazarus, they buried him. They rolled the stones over several days. That when Jesus said, roll the stone away, they interrupted him. They were like, Ah, Jesus, it's been a minute. He's, he's going to stink, right? <laughs> Decomposition had already set in. All three, Jairus' daughter, who'd only been dead for minutes, this boy who'd been dead maybe a day, Lazarus who'd been dead for three, four days. Decomposition had set in. Him, maybe the color was already gone. His body was already beginning to stiffen. She probably still looked alive. They looked very different. But the common denominator was, they're all dead. 
One may look more dead than the other one, but one's not more dead than the other one. They're all dead. It's just how dead do you look? And so we tend to go, well, I'm not like that guy. That dude's been in the grave like three days. And you're like, yeah, everybody's a mess. And he might be further down the mess. He might be running laps around this realm. But all of us are dead. All of us in the same boat. All of us in a bad way is what the Bible will say. All alike under judgment. Verse four, but God. Here's the good part. We've been waiting for Interestingly, this is where the sentence starts. This was all one sentence. We haven't even gotten to the subject of the sentence yet, right? God is the subject, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with him. That's the sentence. If you want the simple sentence of today, God made alive. That's it that we were buried and couldn't get out, and he dove in to get us. I'm old enough to remember when baby Jessica fell down the well. Do you remember that? Little girl playing in her backyard. There's a little tube like this big. She's like, what's in this tube? Darkness, and just kind of fell. And the whole world was just fixated on this little tube in the backyard where this little girl fell. And and what happened is a whole community galvanized. People flew in to dig a hole and just ripped up the earth. And they moved heaven and earth to rescue this baby, right? And all of us cheered. All of us celebrated. And we were like, Jessica, Jessica, you did it, girl. No. She was the one stuck. We celebrated those men and women who would physically work until their hands ripped open and they fell in exhaustion, but they would not stop until they set that prisoner free. We celebrated those guys like y'all did it. And I wish I was one of y'all, but I'm okay to celebrate you from the couch, but it's pretty awesome you were down there. It's amazing that you went diving in to get her and set her free. And that's why we worship. We were dead. What would you do if there are people who had done this? If you were that family owning that estate and these people had used your money, your power, your influence to hurt people, you probably would not say, well, I'm going to love them. But that's what God said. Because we deserve it? No, because of him. Not something he saw in us, but something he saw in himself. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us made us alive. I love that last week he was praying about that you would understand his power, the magnificence of his power, the above and beyond power of God that would raise Jesus from the dead. And now he prays, I hope you'll understand the above and beyond love of God, that he loved you so much that while we were walking away from him, while we were blowing him off, while we as a culture were careening into the dark, he came running in to get us. He grabbed us. He dove in the depths. God made us alive, not just because of his great power, but because of his great love. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. It's awesome um, in the original language. And I'm sorry, I'm so geeking out about Greek today. But um, those verbs that he uses, that he made alive and raised us and seated us, when he says he wanted to do it together with, that's a prefix. You stick on the word in front of it, sin, S-Y-N. And it says he is raised us with him and seated us with him and made us alive with him. What he's trying to show you is, and last week it says that when God is so powerful, when Jesus was buried in the grave, God made him alive. God raised him from the dead and God seated him above all powers. And now here he says, God is so loving that when Christ raised, you raised with him. When Christ was seated, you're seated with him that you are part of what he's part of. God's great love, power graced him, and God's great love linked you into that story. 
It would be like this, and I saw this somewhere. I don't know if it's, let's say this $20 is you. You're a precious possession in the sight of God. Um, and this is humanity, all of humanity. What this text is saying is where humanity goes, you go. And it's not good. But the good news of this section is that Christ became a human being and he went where humanity goes. But he was sinless and spotless, a perfect human. And so God says he's not staying dead, he will rise. And what this text is saying is the good news is that God's in the business of taking you and saying you were in them, now you're in him. And where he goes, you go. Raised from the dead, have a future. Where he goes, you go. Because here's the good news of the gospel. God did not die to make bad people good. God, Jesus died to make dead people alive. That's what salvation is. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. That's what he's done. And when that dawns on us, that's when we become celebrators, that God is in the business of raising us to life, doing something great and powerful in us to make us something more than we are. So if you feel like, I know there's something wrong with me, I know there's something broken in me, and maybe today you're going, whoa, that's, you're saying it's way worse than I thought. Yeah, but it's also way greater than you ever dared dream, that we're not here trying to turn over a new leaf. We're here celebrating a king who came to get us celebrating a father who adopted us, celebrating a Jesus who raised us with him and seated us with him and gave us a new name, right? That we're his child forever. Why did he do it? Verse seven, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I love that. What was the purpose of it? So that in the coming ages, literally every single age that comes over and over again, he might show the vast riches of his kindness towards us in Jesus, that we are his trophy. We are the spokesperson of his grace, that it works, right? Uh, it's fascinating. People love to be spokespersons. We love to be the after picture. You know what I mean? We love to be the, the ambassadors of a thing that worked. CrossFit, it's a great example. There's no such thing as being involved in CrossFit and not talking about CrossFit, right? I mean, isn't that a saying? The first rule of CrossFit is you will always talk about CrossFit, right? What's that about? It's people that knew they needed to work out and they got in a community that was coming after them and then what happened? They suddenly realized, wow, look at my thighs, they're so big and look at my neck, I can barely touch my other shoulder and then they just, they see this workout has had an impact on my body and I like the changes it's made, I like the energy level, the power, I like the community and so what happens? I like what it's done to me, I talk about it. I'm not ashamed to be a spokesperson for CrossFit, I'm not Shame to be a declarer of it. Stand me up upon a mountain and I will sing to others of the beauties of CrossFit and what it can do for you if you only come with us and sweat until you vomit. People love doing that. <laughs> Whole 30, people swear by it, you know? Whether you want them to or not. People are like, yeah, you know, I was eating whatever I used to eat like you. Yeah, I would make those decisions and Cheez-Its were killing me too. Like I can see they're clearly doing for you. And then what did I do? I quit milk and cheese and bread and uh, happiness and fulfillment. And I, I, I quit all those things. And then what happened? Suddenly fruit tasted better and I could see better and I could hear things miles away. And suddenly I just became just a different level of human. And, and we just love being 
the display of the glory of a thing, right? I'm a part of this group, and look at me. Let me testify to the glory of the power of this group. I'm a part of this program. Let me testify to you to the wonders of this program and what it's done for me. What God is saying here is you get a chance to testify to the glory of something. But it's not, not a thing. It's a person. It's the acknowledgement that I'm beautiful in the image of God, but I was broken, and he healed me. I was dead, and he made me alive. My friend, when he woke up from surgery, he didn't go, well, it's a good thing I drove myself down to the medical center today. Good job. No, he looked at those surgeons and said, thank you for saving me, right? Uh, there was a man, Patrick Carnes. Uh, he's the leading voice on sex addiction in the country today. And Patrick Carnes was, is not just the founder, CEO of SAA, Sex Addicts Anonymous. He was a, and is a sex addict. I mean, he, he was abused as a kid. He was a victim of dark things. And then he became an abuser. He became somebody that um, just, just lived in this darkness until it dawned on him as he read Alcoholics Anonymous, their 12 steps. I admit that I'm powerless. I can't break these chains. I, I can't do it. I admit that there's someone more powerful than me. And I surrender. And when that dawned on him, I don't have to live in the shame anymore, the guilt anymore. I don't have to keep trying to get myself out and failing and live in a hopelessness that drives me back into the addiction. I can throw up empty, undeserving hands and say, would you even save someone like me? And as he threw out empty hands to God, he entered a process of healing where what God took a former uh, perpetrator and made him a healer, took a former victim and made him a rescuer. He's a picture of transformation. So when he stands up, he's not proud. Look at me. I did it. You can too. He says, you know what? Look at me. I was broken. But God saved even me. God rescued even me. Like the prodigal son, even when I was a long, long way off, God ran for me. And that's the good news of the gospel, that you can celebrate a God who came for you, and you get to be the display of his immeasurable kindness. And then verse 8 lands, for it is by grace, the kindness of God, that you have been saved. It's a done deal. It's in the perfect tense. means it's completed. It's not you start a path of maybe one day getting God's approval. He says, when you put your faith in Christ, who lived for you, died for you, and raised for you, you get knit together with him. So in that moment, you're forgiven and made alive. You're made something new. Right now, even today, by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. He says, you have been saved through faith. Grace is what saves you. Faith is how we appropriate that grace. Grace is the kindness of God. That's what saves you. Your faith does not save. It's the empty hand. It's fascinating. Spurgeon was asked, why are we not saved through love or saved through mercy? Well, because those, are, those ultimately become things you do. Faith is a statement of you doing nothing. Faith is you saying, someone has to get me. Someone has to save me. Someone has to grab me. That's what faith is. It's the empty hand of saying, God, you got to do it. It's a gift from God. You don't earn gifts. If you tried to earn it, it would negate the very word gift, that becoming something new under God is a gift from God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. It's not going to happen. 
that when you die, you will walk into heaven and God will go, he's here. He's here. Everybody, he's here. He's here. She made it, guys. Come on, get out. Come on. You, you did it. I made it tough on people. I created a way to get to heaven and I kind of hit it. And you had to do some study. You had to do some research. You kind of had to be a little more spiritually in tune, and you did it. All these other morons had no idea, but you. You were bright. You know, you walked early, too. And then what happened? You started reading books. You started doing some studying. You started getting together. You were in tune, and you just worked your way right up to here, and you earned this. Get in here. That's not how it's going to work. We're going to wake up like my buddy in Houston. And we're going to celebrate <laughs> the one who saved us. Yeah. It's about you. It's about him. That's why the people of Jesus should be the humblest people on the planet. You know that, right? An arrogant Christian is the weirdest thing. Yeah. It's just so bizarre, right? Why? Because we don't celebrate that we've figured out anything. I love it. I had a friend who was a believer that got insulted uh, and uh, someone asked him, man, what do you say? That guy said you were a horrible guy. That guy said you had no heart. What do you think about that? And his statement was, he goes, eh, we sing worse things about ourselves in our hymns. <laughs> he said, I sing that I'm a wretch. But the grace of God would save a wretch even like me. He said, That's all I'm doing. Of course I'm a mess. Yes. And yet... I celebrate a God who came to get me. And then it says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. In, in Greek, this is like Greek Sunday. Sorry about this. I'm so excited. Um, the word order can change. We tend to go subject, verb, complement. You can change it around in there, and you can move things in the sentence to, for emphasis. And so in the original language, his is the first word. For his workmanship we are. You don't earn your way in. You don't figure it out. His workmanship. He works on us. And that's good news because if he's the one saving, we can't lose. Because you didn't get it in the first place. He got you. And he doesn't drop his kids. Right? And so it's his workmanship that we are. So even if you have a bad day, even if you're feeling not up to it, even if you're losing, you don't lose salvation. You have been saved. Why? Because salvation is his work, and you are his workmanship. And so that changes you. You have a new identity if you're in him. Michelangelo's David. Beautiful statue, one of the most famous statues on the planet. If you know this, maybe some of you do, some don't, that Michelangelo's David, you know, is carved out of marble. It was, it was from a big piece of stone that had been discarded. It was a stone that had a flaw in it, and so other sculptors passed it by. They didn't want to work with that piece of marble. It was thrown in a heap. But Michelangelo went and got it. He said, that's the one I want, and he got this piece of marble, and he began to work on it, and he crafted it into David, right? And it's fascinating. You look at that, David, it's majestic. It's unbelievable. I don't know if you've ever been to Italy or seen it. You're going to wait in line. There's not really much else in that museum except David. You'll, and you'll see it. People from all over the country will wait for hours to get in there and see it. See this glorious statue that looks like a real guy. You expect him to move and be like, hey, can I get a drink from you? I mean, he's just, just bizarre that a stone can be so alive. 
But it's interesting. I remember sitting there and I thought, if stones could think, which they can't, but if they could, it would be the dumbest thing ever for him to be standing there and go, I'm just a discarded stone. I got passed over. I was flawed. Sculptors walked by me. One of them threw me in a trash heap. I'm a discarded stone. I would say, yes, you were, but then the master's hands touched you and you went from something broken to something so precious and alive, I just waited two hours to come see you. So kill that mentality. You were something broken and worthless, but the master's put his hands to you and you've become something glorious. It would also be dumb if he stood there and was like, my name's David. Drink it in. I was a distorted stone and then I climbed out and I became this. And look at all those other dumb stones. Who are you carved by? Doesn't matter. You're a loser. Look at me. I'm David. Hear me roar. You would say, you are something precious. You are something beautiful but not because of a thing you did. It's because the master's hands touched you. Do you see the beauty of the gospel? It makes you simultaneously humble and confident. Isn't that amazing? Confident to look at the world and say, I'm something valuable. I'm something precious. I may have been something broken, but brokenness does not define me anymore. I am something new because the master put his hand on me. But that doesn't make me arrogant. That doesn't make me, maybe you'll figure it out someday. What it makes me is grateful because it's the master whose hand touched me and made me something new. I was dead, but God made me alive. I was in the depths but God raised me and seated me with Christ. So in this age and every age to come, I'm an emblem of the grace of God that would save even me. That's our story. And he says that new identity carries a new activity. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we used to walk in that. But he said, now you're the very workmanship, the masterpiece of God, and he's prepared good works that you walk in those. It's fascinating, the good works, if you notice. There are good works. There's a place for life change, but it comes after God's work, not before. It's not you were dead and you did some good works and he made you alive. It's you were dead and you did not contribute. He made you alive. And now you have that new identity. You have a new activity. My children, we have three, did not participate in their moment of birth. They, they did not help. I don't know if you know this, just some basic biology here. They did not help mom. They weren't like, mom, you push a little and then let me work a little. They didn't do that. Their arrival on the earth was an entirely passive experience. Ah, right? And once they were alive, we began to work on them. We began to train them. No, you do not yell at your parents. No, you do not hit your sister. Yes, you say, please. We are kind to people. Put that down. Pick that up. Don't hit that. Put that back. And we start to train them. Why? To make them our kids? No, because they are. What the Bible is saying is you were made alive by the grace of God. And now you begin to walk as a child of God, not to earn your place in the family, but because you have it. We were dead. He made us alive. And that new identity carries new activity. I walk as who he's made me to be, right? 
For me, when I was single, I lived like a single guy. When I got married, new identity, husband. And that new identity carries new activities, right? Which involves some no's. To be married guy and to live like a single guy, not good, right? So there's a whole way I used to live. I don't live anymore. It's inappropriate for me to be married to Donna and date other women. Not okay. Product of the old realm, I left behind, right? Because I entered a new activity. I knew I'd get some amens on that one, right? Yeah, that's right, you do not date other women. Um, new identity, new activity. Does that mean there's old things I used to not, that I used to do I don't anymore? Yeah. Does that mean there's new things I do that I didn't before? Yeah. It's a shift in lifestyle, but totally worth it. Totally worth it. Because I got a new identity because I'm hers. And so there's a whole new world. If you have been touched by the grace of Jesus, you live a new life. It changes the way you talk. It changes the way you treat people. It changes the way you live. It changes your decisions. The weirdest thing on a planet is someone who has this new identity and then lives in this old activity. It's bizarre. If someone does not know the grace of God in Jesus and lives like they don't know the grace of God in Jesus, not a surprise. I remember being at a wedding and I love not telling people what I do for a living because I just want them to be who they really are. When you say pastor, people like start acting all weird. And uh, I loved hanging out with these guys. They're, they were saying the craziest stuff, filthiest stuff, most inappropriate stuff. And I remember one of the guy's wives came up later and was like, I'm so sorry. My husband did not know what you did for a living. I can't promise that that would have made him PG, but it would have made him at least R. And uh, I am so sorry. And she was mortified. And I was like, I, I'm fine. What I didn't say to her was, I'm like, he's, he's lost. He's just fulfilling his job description, right? I mean, he's just being somebody that's apart from the grace of God. I'm not expecting him to clean up because of me. That's not my story. And that's not the story I'm looking for him. I want the grace of God to touch him. Because when the grace of God touches you, that's when you become something new. Not to get in, but because you are. Not to earn the family because you've already been adopted. And so if I'm in him, it changes the way I spend money changes the way I talk to people, changes the way I treat women, treat men, see my life and career. And so the weirdest thing is to be his and act like I'm not. It's bizarre. It's, it's not a category that makes sense. I've been touched by the master. I have dignity because of that. You don't need to be ashamed anymore because of your past if you're in Jesus. All of us have a broken past. Every single one of us is a mess. Look at the first family in the Bible. You had Adam and Eve and two sons, and one killed the other. That's a crazy, messed up family. That's sad. And that's our family. It's all of us. Everyone's like, well, I got a weird family. We all do. The world is a mess, and so are you, and so am I. But the grace of God has touched those who are in Jesus, and you can have a new identity today. You can be forgiven. You can have life. You can be his. And then you walk out into the day knowing I have a new identity, not because I earned it, but because the master's hands touched me. And that means I have a new activity so I can be free to bring his grace and kindness to you. Let me tell you about the love of a God that would save even me. That's our story. We sing. He is worthy of celebrating. Why? Because we were dead, but God made us alive. If 
you were encouraged by today's talk and believe it would be uplifting to others, then be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church Podcast.